morning, brothers and sisters. Very thankful I was able to venture out to Mount Carmel. Very blessed to have seen you all today. And I was talking to Elder Aquino as I came in, and we were talking about the Primitive Baptist heritage. I'm very thankful as I've been stationed, been blessed to be stationed here in the north. Every time I come to Mount Carmel, I go to the Welsh Track Church. It's the oldest Primitive Baptist Church in the United States. I was talking to Elder Aquino. I said it's a kind of a, a shallow, like humble reminder that a lot of these old buildings are empty now. That in that time frame in the United States, you could find the sovereignty, sovereign grace being preached all across America. And it makes me weep. I mean, like, what has happened to the church? Our doctrines, we have to the study, we must preach the gospel. I felt like, I also told Elder Aquino, I felt like if we walked into a bookstore in that era, you would have found books and books on the attributes of God, the sovereignty of God. You would have found books and books. But sadly now, if you walk into bookstores, you see the gospel being stripped away. You see the beauty, the purity of the gospel is, is no more. It's been stripped. You see it's all about you your best life now, 10 steps to happiness, or it's not the gospel being preached. We have tried to become the sovereign. And brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. I am thankful that God is sovereign, that everything is up to God. And that's one thing I know we, as primitive Baptists, we adhere to the doctrines of grace. That's also as I was speaking with Elder Aquino, I said we should add a letter in front of it, and it should be the sovereignty of God, because it all starts with the sovereignty of God. And all through church history, it's been plagued with man has tried to be the sovereign. I'd like to turn to a few scriptures that kind of illustrates the sovereignty of God. We turn to Psalm 110. Excuse me, Psalm 115, 3. And this, the psalmist at this time, it was, the nations were mocking like God, but the, what was the psalmist, what was the response here? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatever he has pleased. When we go through these toils, trials in our life, after a loved one has passed away, a, a loved one is struggling relationship falls people often ask well where is God our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases the Psalms has been a been a great comfort for me it really has there's a lot of y'all have heard of the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon it's a it's a widely known fact that he struggled with like depression in his life I read one of his books and was almost in tears as I was reading the book because you could see the depression and that he was in the words, but he would flee to Christ and in God's word. And in every sermon, he could make it to, to the cross, the love of God. But he also understood the sovereignty of God. As I speak, I pray that I, I would decrease and then God would increase, but I'd like to, to share a story. Someone 
the other day was asking just how I was feeling, like, are you depressed or how do you feel? And I said, I've been struggling some. I still struggle a lot, I think, with my brother's loss and just circumstances of life. I said, I would say I was like in a mild depressed state. And he said, well, how do you find comfort? I said, God is sovereign. I'm thankful that God is, like I said, the sovereignty of God is, is truly is a beautiful thing. And then I immediately, as I was talking to that person, I went to Genesis 50, verse 20. We all know the stories like when Joseph got sold into slavery. And this section here really illustrates the, the beauty of, of God's sovereignty. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God meant it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The it, the evil. What we see is all these evil sufferings and trials, God will mean it for good. It's further illustrated by the Apostle Paul and under divine inspiration in the book of Romans. For we know that all things, all things work together for good. Things that are out of our understanding or trials or sufferings that we will not understand. God is, is sovereign. There is not one sparrow that falls. There is not one molecule that is out of God's decree. If there is one thing that is not under God's control, then God's not God. I am thankful that God is, is working in my life because if it was up to me, I would fail every day. And we are taught that he who began a good work will finish it, brothers and sisters. Thank you for your time. We certainly relish the fact and rejoice that the Lord is sovereign. Well, before we... Uh, Invite your attention here. Uh, I bid you to turn with me to Second uh, Timothy, chapter two. Second Timothy, chapter two, and just want to bring a few things before your attention this morning in regard to the ministry. It's been on my heart recently how important it is for the church at large to understand that we are the schoolhouse of God's ministry, or the seminary, if you will. And I think a lot of us don't realize the importance of the church at large to oversee in the matter of the calling of the ministry, the gifts that are given to the church, the young men that will be ordained. Uh, Presbytery is set aside. If you've ever been to an ordination at a Primitive Baptist church, it's really a wonderful thing to see what happens. Uh, ministers come from near and far and partake maybe for the reason that they know the pastor, a special invitation, or maybe that they know the candidate who's to be set aside to be ordained. It's the church that oversees this matter. And I like to remind a lot of my friends of other orders that when the church council at Jerusalem got together with the apostles, with the elders, it's also included in the same verse with the whole church. The whole church is very important. And if you recall some of those particular times that we've set aside to ordain men, that the church was represented. What would happen? Well, the candidate, of course, would sit ahead of us, the presbytery to the side, they were the ordained help, and then also a spokesman, 
would stand and give his approval to what was going on. Of course, a lot of it's just formality, obviously, but it is important and it's to be taken very seriously because the spokesman, we're not asking the spokesman of the church to deceive anybody. The spokesman of the church is going to represent, by and large, what the church feels, the whole church feels, in terms of their approval uh, of this particular gift. While there's two particular, very important, essential ingredients that the whole church oversees in any young man who is exercising or who has been set at liberty by the church to speak from the Bible. These two very important ingredients should be on our, in our minds as we oversee uh, these gifts. And they are mentioned in um, this text here, I want to draw your attention to, the second verse. He said, And the things that thou hast heard of me. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a young man by the name of Timothy. We know that because the scripture says in the text here that in the previous epistle uh, to Timothy, let no man despise your youth. And that was a particular point that we draw out because Timothy was a young man. In contrast to Titus, he also said the same thing, don't let no man despise your authority, leaving out that word youth, which leads us to think that Timothy was a younger man. But Timothy was a very uh, careful man. In other words, he was sensitive. Uh, He needed a special attention, certain encouragement. Titus was stronger in the faith, more independent, more sturdy. Uh, You can read a lot about the distinctions between, for instance, Timothy and Titus by just looking up the words in your concordance and seeing how they are used. For instance, Titus, he's used in the book of the Corinthians, first and second, as many as five or six times. You, you'll, you'll pick up that name and how he is used and presented also in the book of Galatians. So there's a contrast, but Timothy, in and of it, of himself, was, was subject to various trials and infirmities. In one particular case, the apostle urged him not to drink no longer water or don't use water only and use a little wine for thy often infirmities. And so he had issues that he was encouraged to, you know, take part and provide certain things in his health to watch out for. But these two particular overreaching ingredients to the success of a particular minister in terms of, his, of, our, of approval is one faithful... Verse 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. And then secondly, it says, who shall be able to teach others also. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that a uh, minister is to be qualified in terms of their worldly peers, you know, going to a school and getting trained to teach. But it does mean that the man of God who preaches the gospel, is a teacher, is a teacher. He can apply the word. And so it's incumbent upon a young man when he preaches is to open up the Bible, explain the text, and apply it. It's very simple. These are basic rules. So he's to be faithful, and that is he's to contend 
for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Now, if you notice there, he says, and the things which have been committed to him among many witnesses. In other words, there's an adherence to what he's learned. And it's not often that I myself, or probably Brother Steve can speak to this same thing, that when we come up here, we have a remembrance of who laid hands on us. And we're faithful to their charge that they gave us, you know. Brother Compton, in my mind, uh, Wes Johnson, Richard Tillman, some of these other men that were associated with Mount Carmel years ago, they were very influential in uh, our experience. And so we, we remember the many witnesses that were behind us. He said, The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now that idea of faithful must include something in terms of experience and time that's associated with it. That's why Paul would warn uh, the church not to lay hands suddenly on no man or not a novice. In other words, someone newly come to the faith. Because why? Because somebody might look at this particular area with pride, with arrogance, with presumption, you know, thinking that it's something special in that regard, when it merely just serves the purpose of being heard, uh, seen, and to uh, use as a place to present the truth. That's all it is. We could just do this uh, down there as well. In other words, there's no elevated area in, in forms of hierarchy, in other words. And so we shouldn't look at this place as if a way to... Uh, promote ourselves above everyone else. We're just merely servants, as we mentioned last week, in terms of Judas, servant of Jesus Christ. So a minister is a servant by that sense. So he's faithful. He's faithful. There's time element. In other words, he believes something, right? It would be a a wrong thing for a person who's been ordained. Look, when you look at the credentials of an ordination certificate, what do you see? You see signatures, And in the body of that certificate, there's an important element to what is believed. And then it has this little clause, very important clause. If you depart from the the things which you believe, then these credentials are null and void. They cease to exist. In other words, why? Because you're no longer faithful to the call. And then, of course, he adds able. And I think that merely presents the importance of the men of God, so called by God, to preach and to teach the gospel, to edify the work of the ministry, to build up the saints. This is an important note. It's interesting that in the uh, qualifications of a deacon, they run along the same line as the qualifications of a minister that are found both in the third chapter of this epistle, the previous epistle, the first Timothy, and also Titus chapter 1. And what's missing as you compare the list between the minister and the deacon is this little word able to teach. So a deacon is not required to publicly teach. There's the distinction. What is another unique distinction that we find in these epistles or these letters to ministers, that's what I like to call them, not the pastoral epistles, is this little word in the introduction that he has, Paul. He adds the word mercy. 
in his epistles to the ministers, unlike all his other writings. And we ask why would he include mercy in reference to ministry? Well, we all know that. You need to be merciful toward us, right? You need to have a measure of charity and compassion toward those that are trying to teach. And we also need to be given mercy and grace from God for the endurance that it requires because it's not something that is easily done or performed in that sense. And it's long-lasting. As long as you live, Brother Compton said, you never retire from the ministry. You're always given to the work of the ministry. And that's why primarily he might say, when Paul said, therefore my son, he said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in what? In merit? In work? In the function? No, he said in grace because we need grace. It's a reminder that the calling itself is by grace. It's not by a person's personal choice. Like if I want to be a doctor or a lawyer, I choose that occupation as a vocation. I might be interested in electricity. But the ministry is similar to that in that in it's a calling, but it's a calling from above. It's not my own personal choice. It's beyond that. And that calling is advanced by a particular faithfulness to the scriptures. I want to preach the truth, right? I want to be faithful to what I understand the Bible to teach. I've got no warrant in and of myself to just chart new paths and say, well, I'm interested in something new today. No. A minister is devoted. He's faithful to what originally was handed down to the apostles, right? To Timothy, to many witnesses, and to others who are able to teach. So that's the key. The key is, is that you know, we're all given to this. And so the apostle it reminds Timothy of his gift that was presented to him by the laying on of hands. And that, that, of course, was a beautiful picture of how the apostles were given special privileges and revelation by God himself to communicate or to convey gifts. Now, today's a little different, isn't it? Although there's a presbytery, there's a laying on of hands, but our gifts today are not necessarily conveyed, but maybe we could say confirmed, approved of. We give our right hand of fellowship, if, if you will, to the gifts that are given to a young man or an older man, for that matter. And I'll, I'll close with this one very important point as we think about this, this idea of the ministry and how important it is for all of us to judge carefully according to the Scriptures. And that is the warnings, the warnings against certain things, not just pride, presumption, arrogance, uh, but a thing that I call uh, bias toward individuals. You know, there's as much warning to an older minister not to be proud as it is a younger one. A younger minister may be proud of the position or the, you know, that he might occupy, which is wrong. But an older minister may be proud in looking down or despising a younger minister. And a, an older minister must remember that he too once was young and youthful and stumbled and stuttered and had a problem and stammered in the pulpit. Right? So we gotta be we gotta level the axe at the root 
of pride. And, but the particular point that I want to mention is this, and that is a young a minister is, show, is to show no partiality. He is to be committed to the truth. And, that, and, and I believe that is conveyed in uh, how we uh, view people. In other words, we're not, we're not to have any particular bias or respect of persons in terms of this area in which I speak. That we're to be committed to the truth, the representation of the truth, the presentation of the truth, the purpose of the truth, and the ministry without prejudice, without bias, which are natural to man. And so we have to be very careful. That's a warning that Paul gives to, to Timothy. May the Lord bless you, and we encourage uh, all of us to continue praying now for Brother Steve to present the sermon. Uh, I don't know if you'd title this uh, Coming Home or Going Home. Coming Home or Going Home. Uh, I uh, more and more see the hand of God, and I am thankful for that, and and pray that God bless me to recognize it and witness it. Uh, I had heard that Elder Sonny Piles was going to be preaching at Tyler, Texas. The pastor, Elder Vernon Stanlin, had invited me to come to the meeting this last weekend, or uh, yesterday and Friday. And I told him, I said, I, I can't come because uh, we have services in New York and we have uh, uh, planning to meet up there on Saturday. And... I knew that uh, Elder Piles does not travel anymore. Many of you here will remember Elder Sonny Piles. He does not travel much. He turned 80 years old uh, last month and uh, used to come up here and preach at Mount Carmel, at London Track, at uh, Columbia, and has been coming up here for many, many years. I especially wanted to get to hear Elder Piles because he was preaching a week-long meeting at uh, my home church in Lubbock, Texas, 43 years ago. And on the fourth night of that meeting, uh, I felt a desire after the message that he preached to follow and ask for a home in the church and follow in baptism. And I wanted one more time to get to hear him preach. Didn't think that would be a possibility. So on Thursday, out of the blue, Brother Lloyd Wilkinson called, Elder Lloyd Wilkinson, and he said, I'm going to be in New York City this weekend. And so the wheels began to turn in my mind, and I looked on my Southwest app, and the tickets were very, very expensive to go to Dallas. And I said, oh, I can't do it, and then I tried to justify it and went back and forth and, and finally became reconciled that this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. As Brother Compton said one time, we're making history here. And I kind of felt like that might be the case. So... I went ahead and committed to going, and I called my mother, who lives an hour away, and I told her, I said, I may be in the area, but it'll be really, really late Thursday night, and I'll probably just stay in Dallas because it'll be late, and I don't like to drive late at night. And she called me back, and she said, we really need you to come home. We need you to come tonight. Over the last 10 months, they've had a lot of health issues, my mother and my stepfather, and I thought maybe something had happened like that. They've had their house on the market for two years to move to Maryland and not had any 
offers at all in two years. And so I called my mother back and I said, I'll try. And uh, uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning uh, when I finally arrived at my mother's house. And I felt more convicted even to go to my mother's than I did to the church meeting when I got there. And my mother and stepfather were uh, real anxious. Uh, They said, uh, we got an offer on our house today. They wanted them to docu-sign and all that. And, and, uh, And I like all that stuff, but my mother and stepfather don't. They were confused. Well, the offer wasn't what they felt like they needed, but they were very receptive and thankful for the offer. And then the next day, they got another offer from a totally different party. And then when the first party found out that there was another offer, it just went back and forth without my parents doing anything at all to where finally the final offer was above what they were expecting. And they realized that the Lord was in the matter. And we spent the whole day going back and forth with the realtor. And I felt like that the Lord had sent me. He put it in my heart to go and be with Elder Piles. I was thankful. My mother and father, not primitive Baptists, but they agreed to go with me to church that night. (laughs) And it was a special time. Elder David Piles preached. And then the next morning I went back and Elder Piles Those of you that remember Elder Piles, you'll remember how tall and what a strong man that he was. When he walked in the door, I didn't recognize him. Years and a battle with a cow takes its toll on you. Brother Mark and I went to see Elder Piles in his home, and he had been attacked by a cow who was having a calf, and it's taken a toll. He's now a stooped 80-year-old man who had to have help getting up into the pulpit and probably will not be traveling at all anymore. It was a great blessing. I reminded him that 43 years ago, under his preaching, that I was blessed to ask for a home in the church. There's something about going home this special. It is. When Mom said, I need you to come home, That two and a half hour drive from Dallas, I began to think about all the blessings of home. You know, it's a blessing to be able to go home when you can go where your family is. It's a blessing to be able to go home where you can go where you've got some really good memories of happy times. It's a blessing that you can go home and you can remember that it was a place that maybe you felt a sense of security and safety. And that even though everything around may have been in total chaos, uh, seems like if you can just get home, things are so much better. This lesson right here is talking about an individual that's going home. He's away from home for a while. But just like when I was reminded of the blessings of home, I can't help but think that when we're away from home, that we're reminded 
of the blessings and comfort of home. And here he says in Luke chapter 15, great lesson right here. There's three, three lessons where for time's sake, we're going to just go on down to uh, uh, the, 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 the main part. But the first one, the first one in verse four, it says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Now, just you can go home and read these in detail, but you might say, well, that's the preacher's job. Maybe it is. And surely the preacher makes every effort that he possibly can. You might say, that's the father's job. And surely it is. But most likely the father's done everything he knew to do before that one child left and wandered away. He says, and, and, and the father might not even know where he is. Preacher might not know where he is. But the Lord always does. And he says right here that when he hath found it, so the Lord knows where he is all the time. He knows where every single one of us are, uh, male or female, boy or girl. Uh, he knows where we are when we wander away from the Lord. And look what he says right here. And it says, and when he hath found it. Now, it wasn't a surprise to the Lord because the Lord knew where we were. But when the Lord apprehended us, when he finds us, it says he lays us on his shoulder rejoicing. We can't even find our way back. We can't even walk on our own two feet. We can't even help ourselves. But the Lord comes to us and he puts us on his shoulder and he brings us back. Now look what he says right here. He says, and when he cometh home, there's a great blessing in going home. It is. There's a blessing. No matter how old you get, there's a blessing if you get to go home. It's kind of like Bray talking about going home. He said, no, no, nobody, nobody else's cooking is like mom's cooking. That's just one of the benefits of going home. Well, right here it says that when he comes home, now, it could have been that they had a, uh, had a conference meeting when he came home. I tend to think that this is also symbolic of the church. It could have been that they would say, well, you need to give an account of where, where you've been and what you've been doing. But here it says, when he's brought home, he's brought home on the shoulders of someone else. And I tend to believe that's the Lord. And he says that when he comes home, he calls the friends together. Do you know what? I believe that we're all friends here today. I believe we are. In fact, I've witnessed some of this very thing that he's talking about right here. He says, and when he cometh home, he calleth his friends together and his neighbors together. And he says, we're going to have a happy time. He says, we're going to rejoice we're going to rejoice together because he says, I have found that sheep that was lost. So if we're concerned about a lost sheep, we need to go to the Lord and take it to the Lord who's able to find that lost sheep and bring them back. I believe it is. And then he says. This is so good. I've, I've, I've witnessed this. I've witnessed it here at Mount Carmel. I've witnessed it in other places as well. 
He says, we're going to call the folks together and we're going to have a time of rejoicing. We're going to have a happy time. And he says, we're going to rejoice because that sheep that was lost is found. And he says, and, 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 and I, I don't understand all that's going on in heaven, but I have an idea of what this means. He says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than 99 just persons which need no repentance. And I know that you may say, well, that's talking about the Jews that he's referring to right there. There's not anybody that doesn't need repentance, but in their own mind, they may not need repentance. But right here, he says that there's rejoicing with the friends, with the neighbors, with the family, with those that are gathered around. And he says, and by the way, there's even rejoicing in heaven. Now, I don't understand all that's going on in heaven, but he tells me right here that there's rejoicing in heaven, and I believe it. I do. So when you see one of the Lord's ones coming back, and the Lord's bringing them, the Lord's leading them, however he deals with it, however he does it, you can rest assured if there's rejoicing right here, there's rejoicing in heaven as well. It's not contingent upon our rejoicing here, but it tells us right here that there's rejoicing here. There's rejoicing in heaven as well. Let's go on down. The second one, talk, we're not going to uh, mention the second one. It's really, really good. Uh, it, it's, it's excellent. It talks about that there's uh, joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And then he comes down to, the, to, the, uh, to the, the lesson right here. Familiar text, familiar lesson. In fact, uh, brother, brother, uh, brother Phil, brother uh, Andy White, elder Andy White, was preaching this message right here when, uh, when your brother John Irwin came and asked for a home in the church after this lesson was preached right here. It was a special, special time at Columbia Church. It says, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divideth unto them his living. We've looked at this before, but there's a point that I don't think we have made that I want to try to make in this lesson. It says, this young man, I, I, I don't know about you, but to me, to me that seems pretty arrogant on the, on the position of the young man. The father didn't really owe him anything. And really and truly, the father doesn't owe us anything either. And when we go to the father, we go to the father and we go based on mercy and based on grace. Asking for mercy that he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And asking for grace that he might give us what we don't deserve. And so when we go before the father, we don't go before the father saying, Father, you give me what I deserve. Because if he gave us what we deserve, we'd be in a, in a big fix, wouldn't we? If we got what we deserved, it'd be eternal punishment because of our sin. But he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what he wants to give us because he loves us and because of his grace and his mercy. So this is just a pretty arrogant attitude for a young man to go to his dad and say, I want you to give me what I've got coming. I, I don't understand why the father did it. I, I don't question the scriptures. They're the inspiration of God. But it says, maybe, I don't, I can't, it's not for me to know. But it says that the father divided his living unto them. 
And it says that he took his living and he says the younger son gathered all together and he took his journey into a far country and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. I I tend to believe right here that the father had some standards in his home and the son knew that he couldn't live the way he wanted to live in his father's home. And in fact, in order to live the way that he wanted to live, he felt like he needed to go far away from the father. Now, I just want to warn the young folks that are here right now. I can tell you from experience and I can tell you based on the scriptures. It doesn't pay. It doesn't. Maybe that's not good English. Brother Steve's much better at that than I am. It does not pay to run from the Lord. It doesn't. And by the way, you can't run from the Lord. Because ultimately you're in his hand. And he knows where you are. I attempted it one time. Not that that's the only time, but one time I did. And and when when the Lord began to deal with me to the call to the ministry, I thought, you know what? I don't think I want to preach. In fact, I told my pastor, I said, maybe when I'm the ripe old age of 40, I'll reconsider it. And so I decided that I wouldn't. And I stopped. And he said, I'll tell you what. I can handle the heat in the kitchen a whole lot longer than you can. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But I found out. It doesn't pay to run from the Lord. It doesn't. This young man felt like, go read Jonah's experience. Jonah will tell you it doesn't pay to run from the Lord. But when the young man left, he had it all. He had a lot of friends. You know why I know he had a lot of friends? Because he had a lot of substance. You have a lot of substance, you'll have a lot of friends. But all of a sudden, when that substance begins to leave, something kind of happens to your friends. And the friends begin to leave. And you know why I know that? Because it says that he began to be in want. And that's when the Lord begins to deal with us. Just this last couple of weeks, I had an experience with uh, not anyone here, but I felt like that was making wrong decisions, going the wrong way, making some wrong choices. And I tried to labor and I tried to counsel and I tried to talk to. And then I did something I don't ever do. I wrote a letter. I'm not a letter writer. That's not a gift that I have, and I recognize that. And so it's not my area of expertise, as some would say. But I wrote a letter, a lengthy letter. And I approached every angle that I possibly could. And the door was closed. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering, for he is faithful that is promised. And then he says, and let us, that's all of us here, let us consider one another and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. What does that mean right here? I think that just simply means that we're encouraging each other. We do all we know to do. 
We do all that we have light in the scriptures to do. We say everything we know to say. We try to help any way that we possibly can. And if if we have to, we even write a letter. We do all that we know to do to try to encourage. But sometimes it doesn't work. He says right here. Let us consider one another and to provoke. Now, I had two sisters and we provoked each other. That's not what he's talking about right here. He's talking about provoking one another in a good way. He says, let us consider one another and provoke unto love and to good works. He's saying that we're to encourage one another. We are to encourage one another. Our brothers and sisters, especially in Christ. Our children, our grandchildren, we are to encourage them in the right way and unto good works. We're to do all we know to do. And by the way, you know where that begins? The hardest part of that. It's easy to tell them what to do, but it's hard to show them what to do by example. It starts with our example. You heard someone say, preach a sermon. And if you have to use words to do it. It's by our example. Here's what he says right here. And then he says, you encourage one another in this. You encourage one another not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. He says, you encourage one another in good works and you encourage one another in worshiping the Lord. Just simply means you. Go to the Lord's house and worship the Lord. And then he says something else. And this just perplexed me to no end. Anybody ever have a verse that perplexes you? Brother Cook, I I thought you had them all figured out. I really did. I really did. This one just threw me uh, a real curveball right here. I just didn't understand it. Until I heard a really good preacher preach on it. And he opened it up. And I believe that I, believe, I embraced what he said. And I believe this is what I know. This is what he believed that as Brother Polk said, he said, uh, I know it and he knowed I know it and I know he knowed I know it. <laughs> so it was really, really good. He says, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Well, now on the surface, it would look like that if I have gone to someone or you've gone to someone, I as a pastor or you as a parent or uh, uh, Brother Steve Parker as a deacon or some of these good faithful sisters, if you've gone to someone over and over again and you have, you have enlightened them, you've exposed God's word to them, you've instructed them from God's word and you've warned them, it would look like right here on the surface that it's a hopeless case. It would, because look what it says. It says, for if we sin willfully, that's choosing to sin. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. 
Now I believe in grace. But a certain fearful looking of judgment in the fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Another area in Hebrews, it talks about our heavenly about our natural father chastening us. And then it compares it to our heavenly father chasing us. And our heavenly father knows exactly all of exactly what's required. It's, it's just a, a chapter over here in, in Hebrews. I don't want to be chastened by my natural father. But I sure don't want to be chastened by my heavenly father. I don't. He says that we can expect the judgment of God if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth. We can expect the judgment of God. But look what it says right here. It would appear that it would be a hopeless case. In the beginning right here, it's talking about you and I encouraging one another. And the point that he's making right here is that it may very well be hopeless on our part. We may not say the right words the right way. We may not say it in the right spirit. We may not say the right words. It might not be at the right timing. I mean, timing is is a vital part as well. But it may be hopeless on our part. But it's not hopeless on God's. God knows exactly Where we are when we wander from him. And God knows exactly what it takes to bring us back. And it's not hopeless with God. We may have done all that we know to do. But it's not hopeless with God. Now let's go back to. Luke chapter 15. Really, really good lesson here. We'll just sum it up. It's so good. Please go home and read it. You'll enjoy it. It'll be a blessing to you. It says, he began to be in want and he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country. And he, he went and he, uh, into the fields and he began to feed the swine. I heard this last week that, uh, uh, I, I heard this last week that uh, a friend of my mother's has, a pet pig. Now, I mean, I said, please tell me the pig's not in the house. I, I still have a hard time with that. Only in Texas. Well, this young man began to feed the pigs. And it says, he even, has anybody here ever fed the pigs? You know what they eat, don't you? It says that this young man would have been content to eat what the pigs ate. 
That's pretty bad. And then he began to remember what it was like back home. And he said, you know what? Even my dad's servants have it better than I have it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go home. I'm not going to go home and ask my father to give me what I deserve. He already did that. And I wasted it. But he said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, Father, would you just let me live like your servants live? And you know, when the Lord begins to deal with us, a lot of times when we go back home, we go in a different frame of mind than we did when we left. Oftentimes that's a training ground that the Lord gives us. Now I wonder what the father was doing and the mother while the son was away. It could be a daughter. It could be a son. It could be a grandchild. Wonder what they were doing. Do you know he tells us? He said they were looking for the son to come home. They kept the home fires burning. They kept the food on the stove. They kept the house there ready for the son to come home. And you know, I know that the father was expecting the son to come home. You know why? Because the dad, it says, he was, this is how I picture it in my own mind. This is how I picture it. You can do a word picture in your mind. And if if this one doesn't suit you, you may have a better one. I picture that their house was up on a hill and there was a pretty long lane going up the hill. And they had a, a, a bunch of windows across the front of the house. Maybe a glass front door. And the dad was standing there looking out the front door, praying for his son, praying for his daughter, praying for his grandchild. And all of a sudden he gets a glimpse of him. And he says, you know, I believe by the walk. I believe by the statue. I believe that that might be my child. And it says that as the sun began to make that curve and come up that hill, and I'm paraphrasing this right here, the son was all prepared to go out. And when he met the father, say, Father, I've sinned and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But before the son could, could, could express it, the father was out there embracing the son and rejoicing that the son was coming home. And the son came home. In a different frame of mind than what he left with. It says the father ran out and he met the son. Son didn't even make it all the way up the lane. The father ran out, he met the son. And it says his father saw him and he had compassion upon him. And he ran upon him and he he fell and he kissed him. And he fell upon his neck. And And then the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Did you know that that when God deals with us, 
It's not just that we've sinned against somebody else. It's not just that we've sinned against a, a, a co-worker or our church members or our father or our mother. But it's that we've sinned against God. And that God saw it in His sight. And God knows. And here the Son is beginning to show repentance. And repentance is just simply a change or a turn. A, 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 a remorse of the sin and the course that He had taken. And he says right here, he says, and the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And he says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I just want to be like your servants. And did you know that we're not worthy to be called his son? Not of ourselves, but only by grace and mercy. You see, we can't, just because we're here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we can't build up ourselves and say, oh, we're better than that person or this person. You're only here by God's mercy and His grace. Well, it's party time again. The dad calls the folks together. And he says, we're going to have a time of rejoicing. Miss Brother Danny being here, he's not here. He said, I like weddings because he says, I like parties. <laughs> well, they were about to have a big party right here. They were going to kill the fatted calf and they were going to celebrate. Because this child that was lost has come home. Even if you're away from home, you still have those memories of home. And, when, and another thing, when the Lord begins to deal with you, you know where home is. You know, when my mother said, I want you to come home, I didn't have to drive through town for two hours looking for where home was. I knew where home was. And when the Lord deals with his people, they know where home is. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.